Let's pray together. Lord, we come into your presence in prayer through the blood of your Son shed on that cross for us. And so we're thankful, Father, for the grace that allows us to be here together in this place, but more than that, to be in your presence as we pray. And so, Father, our heart, our will, our desire is that you would meet us, God, through your word, that you would help us to understand the truths of your word. May the Spirit of God be the one that teaches us today. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And some 750 years later, a similar vision was had by the Apostle Paul on the Isle of Patmos. We won't read that, but for your own reading later on in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we'll be referring to it. Actually, verses 1 through 11. We'll be referring to it later on. On May the 17th, 1980, 80-year-old Harry Truman, whose picture is going to come up right now, because I know it. There it is. 80-year-old Harry Truman, not the president, by the way, a different guy, sat contentedly at his lakeside lodge, and he had heard the warnings uh, many times for many weeks, over many weeks, that he had just plain, uh, plain decided to not pay any attention to. The government had given him reports, local government, and he refused to leave his home. Beautiful place that he had lived for many years. The next morning he realized that those warnings were valid. They were right. And he was wrong. Before that day, his modest lodge had been a quiet haven. He had lived there for most of his life on the south shore of Spirit Lake, a four-square-mile lake surrounded by virgin forest and some of the best camping and fishing and canoeing in all of the Northeast. On the morning of May the 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted without any chance of Harry Truman escaping. 
Before the summit was blown off, this mountain stood 9,677 feet tall. Within moments, 1,300 feet of rock and debris were blown off the top of this volcano and left total devastation for miles around. One half cubic mile of material slid off the top of the mountain. An eighth cubic mile of material slid into Spirit Lake Basin, displacing the water 860 feet above the original surface level of the lake. A wave or several waves, three football fields high, splashed over the north shore and then sloshed back into the basin with landslide material measuring over 200 feet deep. At the southwest corner, forming a dam and creating an entirely new scene. Three-eighths cubic mile of this material fell into a western river basin. The initial blast that took off the top of this mountain was the equivalent of 20 million tons of TNT. It completely leveled 150 miles of forest in six minutes. The 550-degree steam blast to follow traveled for 300 miles per hour northwards across the landscape, not straight up as you would think, as volcanoes normally do. Some rocks the size of a city block were hurled at an even faster rate, up to eight miles from the, the base of the volcano. 43 minutes after the eruption, a weather satellite 22,000 miles away in space took a shot of the donut-shaped cloud that resulted. Of the 57 people killed that day, Harry Truman is the most famous and probably the saddest case of all. Harry's home was directly underneath the 400-foot bulge in the summit of Mount St. Helens. He was told what was on its way. He was told to leave if he wanted to live. But he chose to stay and die that day, buried under 100 feet of landslide material and another 100 feet of 500-degree volcanic ash. Not a good day. He failed to see clearly or understand fully the awe-inspiring power. The word power hardly describes what it was. Devastating majesty of the impersonal and invisible forces that were at work that day. Certainly saddened by his loss, by the loss of life of the others as well, but there's a part of us that remains awestruck by what resulted from the brief and almost unbelievable movements of those forces. It permanently changed an entire landscape miles around that event. And we listen to this account and we see the pictures and we're almost speechless. And whether silently or out loud, the best we can come up with is wow. Right? Just wow. Yet somehow, we can sit for hour after hour in a church pew, week after week in our own personal Bible study, and listen to the words given to us by the God who designed and set in motion the natural laws and forces that were on display in that event. The creator of all things, the one who created those mountains, the earth itself, the planets, the countless galaxies filled with seemingly infinite numbers 
of stars, and what do we do? We yawn. We're seemingly nonplussed, unaffected, as we come face to face with the great I am. Yet all of heaven is silent before God, and we seem unaffected. Many of us seem to go into sort of a spiritual stupor when we come to church and some sort of mental autopilot, especially when the preacher reads a very familiar passage of Scripture like the one that was read today. And God forbid that he should actually repeat something that he said before, maybe an illustration or an application of the Scriptures. Why are we in this country, it makes me wonder, so blessed with church facilities and congregations and all the theological institutions and, and dozens and hundreds and thousands of ministers of the gospel, almost unlimited access to the Bible and biblical knowledge and theological literature. We're so blessed, yet we're so spiritually lethargic. How does that happen? The evangelical church in America has become the gathering of the frozen chosen used to be just New England. I think it's spreading. And our spiritual flame has been allowed to flicker and remain near death. When we're prompted by the preacher to dedicate our lives to God more fully, uh, each of us is quite sure that he's talking to the guy next to us. For sure, he's not speaking to me. And perhaps we yawn at that point, we check our phones to see if there are any new texts or any new Facebook posts that we need to catch up on. How many times have you yourself sat in these very pews, these pews right here, some of you for years, some of you for decades, and at the close of the service you go on with your life as though nothing significant just happened in that time? Sometimes we've even, before we've even gotten home, we don't even remember what the message was about. Like the man in James chapter 1 and verses 22 and 20, or 23 and 24, he sees himself clearly in the mirror of God's word. And like him, we go away and forget what we've seen. And we make no effort to apply the truths that we've heard to our lives. Why is it then when, when we set aside those rare moments in our personal lives, our private lives, to spend time with the Lord in personal Bible study and prayer and meditation, why is it that we have trouble concentrating or even staying awake sometimes? In short, why are we bored with God? Why? Are we bored with the God who loved us and chose us, who sought us out, who redeemed us with the blood of his son, his own dear son? We might want to blame boring preachers. We could do that. Boring music, sometimes. Boring ritual or liturgy that we face at church. The same thing over and over. Or we could blame the many competing distractions of this world that we live in right now. Life is busy, sometimes too busy, and we bring it with us here, or we bring it with us to the prayer closet. 
But I really believe that it's due to something else. I think it's due to the fact that we've not seen God clearly for who and for what he really is. We haven't grasped, or better, we have not been gripped by his holiness, his magnificence, the majesty of the God we serve. Our vision of God has left our hearts and our minds unimpacted and dull. Because here's the thing. If the reality of who God is gets a grip on you, if you, if you have that face-to-face encounter like Isaiah did and like John did with the Creator God, a clear vision of His majesty, eternally joined with His love and mercy and grace in His Son, all those things that He is, you cannot ever, not ever be the same. If you see God for who He really is, you can never be the same. We meet our Heavenly Father through the Son. The Scriptures tell us that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that He is the express image of the invisible God. We are forever changed from God's enemies, separated from Him by our sinfulness, to being now joint heirs, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Colossians 3, 3, hidden with Christ in God. But the change has only begun, we're told. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that unlike Moses, who had to veil his face and only see a small part of who God is, we can only look at the full glory of God. Not partially. Now we can only look at and see God fully in the face of Jesus Christ. With unveiled faces, unlike Moses, and we contemplate the Lord's glory. And as we do, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Second Corinthians tells us, from one degree of glory to another. Our transformation will be much like uh, many of the examples we're going to look at in a few moments in the lives of God's people as we see them in the Scriptures. Now, there are a lot of results that will happen by seeing God clearly. One is adoration. Job thought that he understood and he knew God, but when the Lord allowed everything to be stripped away from him, he realized that his concept of God was distorted and small. That became very clear in uh, chapters 3 through about 37, where Job and his friends try to figure out why why God was doing everything that was going on in uh, the life of Job, what was happening and why. He loses his wealth, he loses his, uh, his children, he loses his health. Maybe he's just forgotten. Maybe he never really understood clearly before. But Job did not really know God up till that point. Oh, he knew God by faith as his only hope for eternal life. He'd been justified by faith, just like Abraham was. But a genuine and deep and clear understanding of the Lord didn't really grip him until God himself spoke to Job in chapters 38 to 41. And when Job realized the true character of God in chapter 42 of that book, 
He takes back all the foolish things he'd said up to that point. He realizes his own weakness, his own unworthiness, and his frailty, and he realizes the wisdom and the power and the sovereignty of God, and he repents in worship. In Job chapter 42, verses 2 to 6, he says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for, uh, wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my ear, my eye, sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Moses, another example in Exodus chapter 3, experiences not just a, con, uh, a conversion, but a very, the very presence of God, a very real presence of God. And his reaction is to hide his face in fear and in awe of God. Peter, when Jesus told him where to cast the net, and he caught so many fish that the two boats almost sank. Remember that? He had a similar reaction. He fell down on his face at the feet of Jesus. And when he realized whom his, this man was, really, who he really was, he had no choice but to worship him. When, uh, when I was a student at Washington Bible College and, and then in graduate school at Capital Bible Seminary, some, sometime after the earth's crust hardened back, back then, long time ago. I had the opportunity to uh, experience two presidential um, elections and inaugurations because I lived in the D.C. area. I got to see two of our former presidents, both Carter and Reagan, uh, pretty close up, uh, not in a way that you would be able to today. Um, and some of us as students went uh, with one of our professors uh, to the various inaugural balls uh, to, uh, to share the gospel uh, with politicians and media people and senators and would-be politicians, would-be VIPs, that kind of group, uh, in the large foyers of the, of, the, uh, of the hotels, which were open to the public, by the way. That's how we could get in. Uh, obviously, could not get beyond that point, even back then. I remember meeting uh, one senator, Edwin Muskie, among others, a bunch of others. can't remember the others, but... For some reason, he stood out in my mind, and I remember him shaking my hand, and me shaking his hand, and feeling somewhat in awe of his position and his power and all the people in this place, not just him, but all these people, all the pomp and circumstance, even got as far as from here to the corner of our building from Jimmy Carter, got some uh, pretty significant stink eye from Secret Service, but I got close. But you know, I'm oftentimes um, not nearly as awestruck in the presence of God. I'm oftentimes not nearly as impacted by the Holy One of Israel. And that concerns me. It bothers me that I can be so unaffected and so unimpressed and almost bored in the presence of Almighty God. How about you? Why is it that Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 says that there's uh, a blessing in reading the words of that book? I, I know it sounds like a rabbit trail, but it's not. Why? 
because the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, 3 says that. The title of the book is not The Revelation. The title of the book is not The Revelation of John, nor is it Revelations. Okay? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is that which reveals accurately and shows most clearly who and what Jesus Christ really is. And in that knowledge, there is blessing, a very special blessing. The entire book gives a, a detailed picture of the character of God, but one section is especially descriptive. In chapters 4 and 5, the apostle John gives us a glimpse of the very throne room of heaven. We talked about that at the very beginning, just like Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. The throne room of heaven that John sees. It's a very similar picture, a little different. God is continually being worshipped. That's consistent as the thrice holy God by the four living creatures. But why did they cry holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6 and, and here? Isaiah 6, the angelic creatures adore him as well. They hide their faces and they worship him. We understand from uh, Hebrew scholars that uh, when we repeat something three times like this, it becomes a superlative. That is, it's something beyond anything else. Not just a comparative, but a superlative. It's the ultimate in whatever category it's, uh, it's describing. God is holy, that is, he is holy, that is, totally other. Holy with an H, other. There is no one, there is nothing like him. They don't cry righteous, 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 or love, 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 or mercy, 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 or anything other. They cry holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory because God's holiness puts him in a position of uniqueness, of otherness in relation to mankind. He occupies an exalted and majestic and lofty position that no one else holds. He's perfect in every way, and we are woefully imperfect. He's morally pure and we are utterly impure. He is sovereign in his will and his purposes and we are extremely limited and fragile and weak. He is love where we don't even really understand what love is, do we? The God we serve deserves our adoration. May I apply this to you? When you open the scriptures, does the revelation of the real Jesus, the real God, the real God, does it cause you to fall on your face and worship? Heaven does. Do you? If you see God for who he really is, you can never be the same. Another result that's produced by seeing God clearly is confession. When Peter in Luke chapter 5 realizes who Jesus is after this uh, the great catch of fish, remember that again, he not only fell on his face in worship, but he confessed his own sinfulness. Remember, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. A sinful man. Isaiah, uh, when he had that heavenly vision in chapter 6, his first reaction is to confess his own sinfulness before the thrice holy God. Luke 18 tells us, that the, uh, tells us of the account of the Pharisee and the publican, the publican and the sinner. 
The Pharisee gloats that he's not a dirty, rotten sinner like the other guy. But the publican beats his chest and with his eyes lowered in humility, maintaining, notice the passage, it says he's, he's far away, maintaining a, a comfortable distance from the temple. Why? The temple represented the physical representation of the presence of the holy God. And because of his shame, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is this what you and I do when we come into God's presence? Or do we treat God like, is, is Jesus, or is he pal Jesus? Is he friend Jesus? Hey, how's it going, Jesus? Is he that Jesus? Or is he this one? Do we fall before him? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen, there's a fine line between understanding our own sinfulness, even as a child of God, and yet at the same time accepting our righteous standing in Christ. Be very careful not to live life with a, a, constant, a constant downcast attitude. Um, always dwelling on our unworthiness, always dwelling on our sinfulness before God. Some call it worm theology. Don't be like that. Not meant to live in the dirt, never looking up, but we're meant to live in victory, victory that's already been won, it's already been purchased at Calvary. Yes, hate our sin. We need to hate our sin and daily put off the old man and put on the new man, Ephesians chapter 4. We do need to keep short accounts with sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we agree with God about uh, our sin, uh, he gives us, uh, that, or that gives us access, our confession gives us access to the faithfulness and the, and the, uh, the justness, the true justness of God, who judged his son for our sin, and the one who forgives us and makes us pure by the blood of his cross. But it's not just about our specific sins. We've got to live each day. This is important. We've got to live each day knowing that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. And also knowing at the same time that God is at work in us, giving us both the desire and the ability to live in a way that reflects his glory. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Remember that your sanctification is God's job. He doesn't need your help. He's fully capable of doing it all on his own. It's not a collaborative effort. He does it all by himself. He will complete what he has started. You will one day, listen to this, you will one day be like his dear son. Philippians 1 tells us that, and Ephesians 1 tells us that. Remember that you're not home yet. Remember that our sanctification will be realized when we are home. And the riches of that inheritance will be fully realized when we reach heaven's kingdom, not this one. Now, right now, we're positionally righteous in Christ. The first three chapters of Ephesians tells us that, among other sections. But practically speaking, like uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4 tells us, that sin is always crouching at the door, right? 
Its desire is for you, and you must master it. Jesus reminds us to live a gospel-focused life of humility before God. The Beatitudes help us understand that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to wake up each morning recognizing our frailty, our natural tendency towards sin, our spiritual bankruptcy, our inability to live the life that God wants us to live on our own. As I've said a couple times, I've been up here, the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. There's only one that's ever lived it successfully. His name is Jesus Christ. And your job and mine is to get out of the way and let him live it through us, through the power of the Spirit. Recognizing that all that we bring to God is our brokenness. And all that he can do is give us grace every moment. We're always better than we deserve, always. We have most definitely, we have most definitely outpunted our coverage, right, when it comes to pleasing God, when it comes to any kind of worthiness in respect to God's favor. John Piper uh, puts it this way. You are more sinful than you know, and you're more loved than you imagine. You are more sinful than you know. Let that sink in. And you're more loved than you imagine. Let that sink in as well. If you see God for who he really is, you can never be the same. And another result of that clarity of vision of God is submission. In the spring of 1986, uh, we were uh, close to completing two years as missionaries in the Dominican Republic. And we moved from the city of Santiago in the north to the capital, Santo Domingo, in the south, uh, on the southern coast. And real, uh, little did I realize as that day began that God had some very special things planned. Um, and I had, had no idea how it was going to end up when I was in the middle of it. Uh, following a, a big pineapple truck, uh, filled with all of our worldly goods at the time. Uh, in our family car, I drove Cheryl and the four kids to our new home in the south. And I would return the next day by bus to then drive my motorcycle down south to, the, to our home, to the capital. And the trip um, became something totally different than I had planned, and nothing that I could have uh, predicted. And as I drove down... Uh, it began to rain a little bit, and the night started to close in, and my motorcycle died. And as I was pushing it along the road, I came up to a village that had no lights, as was often the case. A couple of little candles flickering off in the distance in windows. As I pushed my bike, I pushed it up next to a little colmado, a little roadside stand. A bunch of people were hanging out there. I saw a few more candles, heard some voices. I said, oh, that sounds like a fun place. So I pushed my bike in over there, and I met this young man, and the young man said, give me 20 bucks, and I'll go get you. He checked out my motorcycle, said, give me 20 bucks, and I'll, I'll go get the part you need and bring it right back. So I go, what do I got to lose? I guess just 20 bucks. So uh, I gave him the 20 bucks, 10 minutes. He said, I'll be back in five minutes. Ten minutes went by, 15 minutes went by, half hour went by, almost an hour went by. 
And I'm going, oh, great. What a sucker. I got it written right across my head, gullible. Um, but he came back, brought the part, fixed my bike, got on the road. I was a happy camper. Got down the road about another 20 miles. Bike died again. So I pulled off the side of the road. More stuff was going on. This, at this point, I started noticing not just people out, you know, like those folks there. I, I noticed people running by me and running through the woods and running over here and running over there. And I'm just kind of, okay, whatever. And, and then I saw another house over here. There wasn't anything about this one house. I pushed my bike and I went over there. And sure enough, um, as the Lord would have it, the gentleman that was in there was a mechanic. And he said, I know what your problem is. And he went out and 15 minutes later, I was running down the road. Beautiful thing. Here I go, through the rain. Drove down about another 20 minutes, half hour. Yes, you guessed it. My bike died again. This time it was fortunate, I was fortunate enough to die, the bike that is, next to a big strip mall, what they would consider a strip mall down there. And there were, there were actual lights. There was electricity. So I, ooh, this is promising. So I push my bike across the road to this strip mall, and as I'm there, lo and behold, here's that young man, that first young man that I saw. He said, what are you doing here? And I told him the story. He said, come with me. I said, okay. So we, we pushed the bike, we locked it up. A friend of his was the night watchman at this place. And he said, leave your bike here, it'll be safe. He said, bring your helmet. Okay. So I followed him down the path. And I spent the night with his family in that home and was able to share the gospel and lead him to Christ. And you say, well, God, what the heck is going on here? Why would you make my motorcycle die? Come on. That's what I wanted to say the first time. Really? Really? God, come on. And then the second time, okay, this is almost funny. The third time, I was not a happy camper. But God had his way. And when I realized that God's idea for my life <laughs> over the next 24 hours was very different than mine, and that not only had I come to make sense of all this and, and understood what God wanted to do, but I, I clearly saw his hand leading. It was very clear that this was God leading and orchestrating every step of this trip. And I knew that submitting to his will in the way that I did was my only recourse. And the resulting opportunity by submission to him and to submission to his will and not flipping out and not panicking and trying to do something on my own resulted in me being able to minister the gospel to someone who I later saw some months later who had plugged into a local church and was growing in the Lord. But as I found out later, probably spared my life or at least some injury because as I got up the next morning, a real mechanic had actually fixed the bike and my friend woke me up and said, hey, come on, your bike is all done. And I went outside to the street and as often happens down there, the street was filled with burning tires and rubber and debris. And there was a small riot in the streets that night and they were protesting North Americans. And guess what would have happened to me, maybe? Don't know. But I also want to think that God preserved my life, or at least my health. 
as well. So God has a plan. And what I learned that day is that when you submit yourself to God, there's no telling what he will do through you and for you. When David realized his sin, he ultimately realized it was against God in Psalm 51, verse 4. He first responds in worship and confession in the first three verses. And then he expresses his desire for renewal and then to submit to God, submit his life in service at the end of that section. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, again, verse 11, after that great catch of fish, it says, left everything and followed him when Jesus called. Isaiah's response to his uh, now much clearer vision of God started with confession of his own sinfulness and ended with, here I am, send me. He knew then and there that everything that, everything that had happened made his life different. Everything had changed. He could never be the same. He could never go on with life as it was before those events, just business as usual. His life must now and forever take a new path, and that's exactly what it did, one directed by God and motivated by the plan and the purpose of God in his life and his eternal kingdom. Here's the thing. God wants your allegiance. He wants my allegiance. He wants your will surrendered to his plan for your life in the trips, the journeys of your life, in the day-to-day. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that you and I, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And you're not home yet. The vision of heaven that Isaiah had and the one here that we saw in Revelation is where you're headed. That's your home. That's the real home. That's the real reality as a child of God. 1 Peter tells us that we're strangers and we're pilgrims. And like Abraham, we're looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews chapter 11. Another thing that John Piper says that really captured my heart, my mind. I have a vision of the church with strong desires not shaped by the persuaders of this world, but shaped by the messages coming from the fatherland, from that land, from the real kingdom. Oh, for a church with a single and radical allegiance to the king who said, my kingdom is not of this world. Let me ask the obvious question at this point. Are you afraid of what God might ask you to do? What he might ask you to say? Where he might ask you to go? What priorities he might ask you to change? Andrew Murray, who's a a 19th century South African pastor, said this, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. Understand this, that the declarations of God, the directives of that king, of that kingdom, they're not suggestions. 
The application of the Word of God to the heart of the child of God demands change. What are you willing to do for your king? That's what he's asking. When Isaiah submits his will to God, God gives him a mission to carry out. Isaiah's life purpose has now just become crystal clear because he's given his will to God, the one he sees clearly. When we surrender our pride to God's majesty in adoration and confession of our sin, and we recklessly surrender to whatever his purposes are for us, we put ourselves, it seems illogical, but we put ourselves in the safest and most satisfying position that any human could ever hope to be in, right in the very center of his purposes. In God's hands, to be shaped by him and used for his purposes, to most accurately reflect and declare his glory to the nations. Your uh, thoughts and reactions to hearing the name Mount St. Helens is probably never going to be the same as it was before. God's desire for you is that each time you see him afresh, that you will be changed. You'll never be the same. God doesn't want theologians. He wants submitted worshipers. Your knowledge of God's word is irrelevant if not applied to your life. He wants those who are ready to serve at his command. He wants your life to bear his image well to a lost world. Seeing God clearly doesn't merely change your perspective. As the Spirit of God changes your heart through the power of the truth of God's word, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, to another, being conformed to the image of his Son into a truer reflection of that glorious God. If you see God for who he really is, you can never be the same. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace in our lives through the blood of the cross. We thank you for this morning, Father, that we can celebrate that together. We can understand once again the power of the cross and the sacrifice that was made for us, what it purchased for us. We thank you, God, that you can change us and you want to change us. You want to make us more like your son and you've purposed that and you will complete it. So, Father, I pray that you'll help us to surrender our praise, surrender our confession, and surrender in submission to you, to your purposes, to your will, to your plan for us. Not just for a a life's calling, but for every moment of every day in the small things, Father, as well. May you have sway in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.